This is part two of a two-part series where Ryan and I discuss articles written by the White Coat Investor disparaging the infinite banking concept. We had fun. Hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery, here with young Mr. Griggs in continuation of uh, his choice of topics. Yes. Welcome back. Yes. Um, so in our last episode, in part, I don't know if it's the last one, depending upon how these get posted, but in part one of this little series, we covered uh, a blog, a website, whatever you want to call it, called White Coat Investor. And this individual who is a, uh, who he says he's a board certified practicing uh, emergency physician who apparently dabbles in finance. And in 2012, he posted this first article, which we covered last time, um, the title of which is A Twist on Whole Life Insurance, giving his uh, commentary on the infinite banking concept. Uh, and we very carefully deconstructed a lot of the errors in that article. Um, Would you read his bio? You know, I mean, you mentioned it before we started last time. Yeah. <clears throat> because it's really pretty interesting and so, quite telling. Yeah. So his name's Jim. I'm a practicing board certified emergency physician, 12 years out of residency. Although I've always been interested in personal finance and investing, I really started diving into the field midway through residency when I finally got sick of financial professionals ripping me off. Listen, bro, you Do they both. have any money when they're doing their internship? They, no, they're like they're paid like interns. Or he was already out of his. Listen, he's saying his midway through residency is when he oh. okay. got upset okay. with financial professionals ripping him off. I mean, you and me both. Uh, all right, bottom line, I'm apparently a slow learner, but I finally realized, everyone wants a doctor who's a slow learner, by the way. Bottom line, I'm apparently a slow, I'm apparently a slow learner, but I finally realized that if I didn't acquire at least a basic understanding of personal finance and investing, that I would continue to be the target of unethical financial professionals for the rest of my life and perhaps never reach my financial goals. So I embarked on a lengthy self-taught process to learn personal finance and investing, particularly as it applied to physicians and other high income professionals like myself. By the way, my understanding is that doctors are not super high income, but other some are you know they are, earn 1.5 yeah. and spend 1.8 yeah <laughs> i mean they're like everybody else the income's only half the picture yeah all right overworked a underpaid after a few years of reading books and blogs i participate and participating on internet forums i realized i was doing a lot more teaching than learning and that nobody was teaching this stuff to doctors not in medical school not in residency and not to busy attending docs i couldn't find a single active financial blog out there that was directed at physicians so i started it myself to provide the resource that I wish had been available to me. You've now found the blog that I wish had existed. I mean, I commend the dude. You know, he's sure. upset with the way things are, wants to do something about it. Just don't start treading on infinite banking. <laughs> you're going to come on this Because he's talking. biased. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, the infinite banking concept would solve a lot of the problems that he's concerned about. But, all right. So we are now getting into... Part two, his November 2020 article entitled Seven Truths About Infinite Banking. And I mentioned on the last episode, but the inspiration behind all this really came from me because I'm a participant on the Tom Woods podcast, uh, Supporting Listeners group. And every now and then someone will talk about IBC. Maybe they heard about it from Bob Murphy. Um, maybe they watched the one episode on Tom's podcast about IBC. Why does he leave it up there? I don't know. Uh, and every time someone brings it up, a particular individual, I don't know who it is, I don't care, 
brings up, oh, but the, the, you know, dummy, don't you know that white coat investor already eviscerated this? And uh, no. And I had no interest. I've never read the articles. I've never read anything about white coat. I've seen it from time to time over the years, referenced. And yeah. But people I like could, this. They I like could it. care less about the noise is my point. Yeah. It's like. <clears throat> yeah, watch that New Year's episode in Dave Ramsey and see how little he cares about the noise. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the opposite. All right, so in seven truths about infinite banking. <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. I do, uh, okay. Mm-hmm, I, I mm-hmm. care not to indulge myself or dip myself into this noise because you can barely get it off of you. Yeah, it's, right. it's sticky for sure. So that's my concern for it getting on me and lingering. Okay, and and dissent and uh, debate is all good. You know, I mean, there's uh, articles out there for and against infinite banking and weak on both sides, mm-hmm. and, and so it's all good. Uh, I think that the consumer, someone who's potentially interested in becoming their own banker, or utilizing the concept that Nelson so eloquently added scale to in his 92 page book. Um, it's okay to, to read other things. And it's okay sure. to get the approval of all of your peers, you know, mm. before you do something. I mean, the whole world, <clears throat> they the world's right about everything, right? Yeah. So get their approval. It's called resistance. When you start spending too much time in the noise and getting hung up on certain things, sort of making excuses to yourself to not do something that you know you should, yeah. the psychologists call it resistance. And you're resisting doing what you know you need to do. So yeah, you can spend as much time in the noise as you want, and that's why we don't do a lot of these kinds of shows where we're explicitly referring to one particular thing. This is an exception, like the Dave Ramsey one, um, because people do ask about it, and I'm tired of answering the question. And they're and they're <laughs> and they are Dave Ramsey's like infinite banking is a scam. This guy, Stavin Trues, about infinite banking. He's the one going in the twist, a twist on whole life. You know, he's the one that's naming. Uh, this is more clickbaity than anything that. Oh my gosh, Seven Trues about infinite banking. Yeah. Uh, All right, yes. so, let, okay. let's, so let's get into the first one. And this is the thing it's like every good deception is half true. You know, infinite banking requires you to buy a whole life policy. Yeah, that that is a true statement. But. The content of this particular section quickly goes off the rails. Uh, the f- second line, he says, whole life insurance has a terrible reputation and for good reason. I mean, kind of an assertion there, buddy. I mean, you know, it's like, first of all, who cares, right? Appeal, appeal to authority. So what, the world got something wrong. What's new, okay? Uh, you might even think that if the world got it wrong, it might be the right thing to do. It, so, infinite banking requires a whole life policy. However, banking is... Right, banking mm. is an action, mm-hmm. and you can bank with anything. And so it just so happens that dividend-paying whole life insurance issued by a mutual company has all of the required characteristics for a private banking entity. Mm-hmm. Right, but now I can I can collateralize my tractor. I can borrow money on my cows. I can you know, banking is, and banking has been. Right, and I said it before, and I'll continue to say it. It's the second oldest profession in the world because somebody had to finance a first profession. Mm-hmm. Whether they called it banking or not. And the question doing. is, who's performing and who's controlling the banking function in your life? And if you've abdicated your responsibility to perform that banking function, you've also abdicated the profitability and the control. You. So, okay. 
When I have polled doctors that have actually purchased whole life insurance, 75% of them regret purchasing the policy. I mean, how sad is well, that? The you know? sentence above that, it says, you know, he, he quotes, he, according to the Society of Actuaries, approximately 80% of policies sold or surrendered prior to death, which is an abysmal statistic. Now, and... And I've, I've, I've been in the life insurance business 30 years, and I've never heard that high uh, number. By, by the way, no link there. That's just... <clears throat> right. And, and then, and let me say, the sentence that you're on, or after, right, well, yeah, when I've polled doctors that have actually purchased whole life insurance, 75% of them regret purchasing a policy. Mm. Well, Doc, let me tell you, my name is James Nedry, 20 <laughs> miles south of Fort Worth in Alvarado, Texas. And if you have a dividend-paying whole life insurance that you can't afford... Right, okay, or that you don't like, please call me. I'm a buyer. <laughs> yeah. All right, so yeah, there you go. There's a whole market. We should be talking to doctors. Y'all, listen, sell your. <laughs> we'll take them. <laughs> I'm just saying. <clears throat> That's hilarious. And I mean, a lot. Some of this stuff is true. And in full disclosure, I'm going to change beneficiaries, and you know, I'm going to profit from that purchase. Okay, and it's not going to benefit you whatsoever. Right. As a matter of fact, if you sell your life insurance policy, the insurance industry considers that you selling your mortality. And there's a whole secondary and tertiary market. It is not good for you. If you sold your life insurance policy, every life insurance application has a question on there. Have you ever sold or do you intend to sell this life insurance policy or a life insurance policy? And when you say no and you actually have, that's fraud, number one. Mm. Right. If you say yes, they're going to say no, thank you. Right, because it jacks with their mortality and their lapse ratios. Go figure. Right, because there is a high percentage of lapse in all of life insurance. Now, when you segment out just dividend-paying whole life insurance, it's nowhere near 80%, nowhere near 50 or 40%. Yeah. My understanding, and I don't have a link there to reference either. Well, we have our own <clears> personal <throat> experience. Not a single client of mine is. Oh, I've had some clients. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you've been doing this a little while longer than me. Okay, I mean, it's rare, and it and it typically comes from their brother-in-law who you oh, know, you know what? Yeah, and I buys into things like this or whomever. But my point is, I am a buyer of life insurance, but it does not benefit you if you sell your life insurance, right? Because you will not get more life insurance if you're honest on an application. Mm. So it is not good for you. But still, um, apparently, eighty percent of you docs don't like it. So. Gosh, if 80% or if 75% of doctors regret their purchase of whole life, then maybe we shouldn't be talking to doctors about how, finance. How, <laughs> how, many, how many docs regret going into medical into the medical profession, profession and then staying there now? Look, it's like uh, half of your decisions are dictated by somebody 3,000 miles mm -hmm. away in this uh, medicine that we have in Western in, in America today. All right, look, you were gonna you were gonna mention that one person that laughs the policy. <laughs> yeah, I had a guy um and he went through a process, super preferred, paying a high percentage of his income into premium, smooth process, like the guy. I get a call just within the appropriate time frame to where the policy didn't lapse, he just refused it. You know, they re reversed the change. He got married to his girlfriend who was in medical school. Yep. By the way, <laughs> And she so said, she has a, a financial degree. Yeah, oh, yeah. And she said, you're doing what? Whoop. You're paying how much premium into whole life? And he's like, he tells me on the phone, I know she's wrong. I know this is right. I know it's good, but she wants she's me to boss. cancel. And I'm like, <laughs> what are you talking to me for then? Yeah. You know? And I told him straight up. 
and I would tell it to anybody, <clears throat> you're making the wrong decision. My professional opinion is that this is wrong. Yeah, but your professional opinion it. is biased and skewed because you you stand to gain something from it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like all these docs are practicing medicine out of the goodness and kindness of their heart. And I'm not saying that they don't go on these, you know, uh, excursions all around the world and practice free medicine. I'm not saying that. But to insinuate that a commission is a bad thing, it, it just, so your remuneration, whether it's a 1099 income or distribution from your partnership or your salary, that's a good thing because it doesn't have the word commission, right? Well, how much of the, when you, when you practice medicine and you perform a particular procedure, do you get a percentage of that bill procedure? <laughs> <laughs> right? I'm just asking questions, but because you're a quote unquote salesman, right? That earns a commission. It's a bad thing. You know, this table that we're sitting on right here, which is, I know if you're a regular listener, we upgraded our podcasting table, Upgraded. Yeah, which Mr. Griggs is <laughs> not okay with change one. because <laughs> this is taller, but the previous podcasting table, you know, it bought at a garage sale, right? It needed, it needed it to be upgraded. really well. All right, so, well, these chairs are much more comfortable. You know, we're getting longer-winded, so I needed this a 30-minute chair. Okay, the place that we, my lovely wife and I, went shopping for, she was going to buy a new couch, and I just happened to see this on the showroom floor. In this particular place, everybody had their little T-shirt on or their collared polo shirt and their name tag right there, and greeting at the door was like, hi, my name is so-and-so. I am not a commission salesperson. Oh. And I said, well, I would like to talk to the commission salesperson. <laughs> and she said, well, no, we don't have one here. And I'm like, well, you're, you're being boastful and prideful of that. Like, that's a, a, an attribute. Yeah. And she's like, yes. And I'm like, well, I don't agree with that. I would rather talk to a commission salesperson. Blew her mind. She was 19 or 20, whatever. She had, what? Mm. Okay. So I'm just saying that the connotation that commission is bad. Well, that implies you're working for free. Right. Right? I'm like, oh, it's not a commission. It's a salary or an hourly wage or a distribution. It just, it, it I, don't, I don't understand that. And by the way, Homeboy's got a course that he sells. What? Yeah. It's, it's just non-commissionable. It's a fee. Fee for service, <laughs> right? Might as well call it a banana. I mean, you're just picking fruit, right? That's uh, all right. right. Yeah, just <laughs> naming names, right? One's bad, one's good. <sighs> okay. Get oh, back okay. to this article. Okay. Uh, he says, you are not buying this policy in order to replace lost income, lost income in the event of your death. Buy a big, fat term life policy to do that. As you will see below, your quote-unquote infinite banking policy really is not going to reliably provide this important financial function. All right. That's an assumption. It's wrong. No this question. is blatantly, the exact reverse is true. Someone who diligently practices infinite banking will end up with more death benefit than they ever thought possible. I'm going through this right now with the restaurateur, and if the life insurance companies could... You can't even get it past the underwriter. When I you mean, solve for the banking function in your life, it, you know you cannot buy life insurance without a death benefit. It doesn't come any other way. It's so weird having these conversations with these companies like... Like, well, we're only going to do this much. I'm like, you know, does Walmart say that? Like, oh, you know, we're only going to let you buy two gallons of milk. Yeah, like, let me see. Your, your investment broker is like, well, you can't put that much money in here. 
Yeah, yeah. Or how about, <laughs> you know, a guy asked me the other day, he happens to be like, oh my gosh. All right, uh, Kelly, an emergency room. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely guy, intelligent guy. I mean, he's like, James, why don't you ever talk about annuities? Mm. And, and uh, he's like, I find that very polarizing, you know, in the, in the big wide world of finance, the finance, you know, people love them or hate them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just saying that in today's world, right, the suitability that comes from an, an annuity, which is a life insurance contract, is the scrutiny is unbelievable, mm. Right, all of the suitability, all the questions that you have to answer. And then it goes before, you know, God bless you. I'm not really trying to rip on anybody, but somebody 2,000 miles away that maybe has a, a bachelor's degree or not, <laughs> and, and, and quarterbacks, the financial professional that has determined with their client that an annuity is the best solution for their particular situation. All right. And they're like, no, this is not suitable. You're, no. But the very individual could go put as much money as they possibly wanted Mm -hmm. to into the market where you have the potential to lose everything, to go past zero. Mm -hmm. If you look at Reddit, Mm -hmm. all the hedge funds, they went past zero. You had leverage in the market and you know as well as I do, you can go right past zero. All right. So. But we can't let you have all these guarantees. No, no. <laughs> we got to make sure. Oh, my gosh. There's a surrender charge on there. It's like, oh, my gosh. Uh, okay. So this is just wrong. Hi, right, Kelly. That was your shout out, young man. And the reason I brought up John, the restaurant guy, is we put the illustration together, finally looked at it. He's like, oh, my gosh, all that death benefit. I'm like, yeah, dude. I don't even is... want that. Can you get any less? Yeah, no, it doesn't come like, any other way. Unfortunately, we can't. <laughs> but then again, too, if you look at that, life insurance is a tool, right? If... That young man graduated early. The loss to his businesses mm-hmm. would be more than that. Mm-hmm. You can't even, you, you almost cannot be properly insured in the life insurance industry. I say almost. Okay. Seriously, the proposed death benefit we're asking for would cover like four years of, of revenue. And the life insurance companies are blinking at that. It's like... <sighs> His true insurability is like 150 million, and y'all just need to say yes and say we'll be waiting for the next application. Anyway, uh, so life insurance is the replacement <laughs> of lost income. That's it what depends death on ben- how you calculate the numbers, young man. That's what death. Ben- <laughs> I, I, I don't understand that. I, uh, okay. All right. So that's wrong. This is why we have such great listeners, you know, because who else does this? Who else talks about this kind of stuff? Nobody. You know, Nobody. so thank you for listening. And it came, it came to mind too, is like, you know, this is the danger of the internet. Yeah. You want to do a blog, you want to do a course, you want to, okay, go ahead. But it's going to live forever. Oh, and if listen. you wade into the world of infinite banking, I'll find you. And if it sticks in my <clears> mind long <throat> enough, I'll talk about it. Listen, I ran on to, uh, I should, I should have that. I, I, I wrote down verbatim what this Yahoo said talking about infinite banking. Mm-hmm. And it's like unbelievable. Like you can take all your money out. You can keep taking money out and it does not matter because this keeps making money no matter what. You can't stop it. <laughs> and, he, and he, I think he charges for his education. 
I think Jordan liked one of our commenters who I'll mention later, liked that I call them financial entertainers. Yeah. That's what they are. They're just, you That's go what on, they are. yeah. Mad because you can't get on CNBC, so you start a YouTube channel. Uh, <laughs> 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 okay, next. <laughs> well, maybe he's publishing JAMA. Yeah. With the New England Journal. <laughs> oh, he's a physician. The one that retracted their big COVID study. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. Okay, it's, all right. It's real. Number two, the policy. I had it. Seriously, it's real. I just couldn't test positive. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. He's not kidding. I'm not. Okay. Number two, and again, this is a true statement. The policy must be structured correctly. Uh, yeah, it, it, it must be, and a lot of people don't. Um, however, he quickly gets into talking about um, improving the rate of return. And again, I harp on this language <laughs> stuff. Uh, the rate of return idea, what people think of when you say the phrase rate of return, they are thinking of a check they are sent because they've made an investment. They're or thinking an of, increase in the value. I mean, they don't have to have a check, do they? Two things. A, a ongoing cash flow, mm -hmm. right? Or an eventual cash flow resulting from the sale, right? What they call a capital gain. So one of those two, that's what people are thinking of when you say this term rate of return. That is not what is going on in dividend paying whole life. We are not earning a return. The value of the contract, the cash value, your capital, that number is increasing. That, and that's, that is true. But this, but this is not a return. This is the value of an of a asset you own. And, and in fact, you're not going to or shouldn't. It's not recommended that you sell the contract in the future to realize a return. That is, no, you wouldn't want to do that. And in fact, he talks here about the modified endowment contract, which he seems to understand is a inferior tax treatment. Okay, well, the way to avoid that is to not sell or give up the contract. And so we're, the thing he doesn't like would be the result of what you would need to do in order to use the language he's using, right? We're, and no, so, and, and like I said in the last episode, people harp on, or I think maybe it's my own mental block, but you know, that I'm being nitpicky or semantics and I'm focusing just on words. No, that it matters. We're not. And in fact, the industry and the, the, the asset itself, dividend paying whole life has been beaten up. I mean, was just brutalized in the eighties with modified endowment contract rules because the providers of these contracts, at least the big named ones can't get their mind around life insurance not being an investment. And so they would go out and advertise life insurance as an investment. And the industry said, oh, you can't do that. This is an investment. And, and lo and behold, now we have these new tax restrictions in the form of modified endowment contract rules. So, you know, he hates whole life. I get it. So it's not in his interest to use the right words. But if we're what? if we're trying to be unbiased, which <laughs> no, you're not. Your bias is clearly against dividend paying whole life. Uh, so you do have a bias, which, by the way, is fine. Just but admit you've got it. it. But Just admit it. Maybe, yeah, be correct. Yeah. And use the right terminology, <laughs> right? Uh, the best way to improve the rate of return of a policy is to have relatively small base policy and then put more cash into it with paid up additions. You know, it, him and this, uh, the 1090 people. Would, Same thinking. Would, yeah. Same thing. Same thing. 
<clears throat> Same thinking. So the doc should just go by, and I'm not giving investment advice. You know, tax-free mini bonds and 30-year term. Yeah. That's <laughs> like. Oh, and, and but the term is going to solve for replacement of lost income in you know the thirty first year when that term policy no longer is in, in force. What? Oh yeah. Mm. So maybe they should just buy the stock of a publicly traded company. Yeah, why not? Company. Why not? And then just buy a dividend paying stock. Whatever. Um, I digress. I love how you know he he he. I guess this is a blog, right? And or maybe it's off his website or whatever. But it's chock full of life insurance ads. So I wonder, <laughs> is he does he receive a commission, a revenue share, an advertising fee for all of these? And I mean like Dave Ramsey, right? He sells more advertising on radios than you can shake a stick at. Mm-hmm. And then and then he has all the endorsed local providers pay him anywhere from two fifty, two hundred and fifty dollars to fifteen hundred dollars a month. But don't call it a commission. Whatever you do, <laughs> don't use the word commission. All right? Because every other form of payment is fine, but that one. You know what it is? It's it's, it's a contribution to America's frontline workers. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> I, I love this down here. He's like, but instead of breaking even, so the rate of return on your cash value is still going to be negative for a while, like all cash value life insurance policies. But instead of breaking even after the typical 10 to 15 years, mm. right, using paid up additions mm. allows you to break even in as little as three to five years. Mm. Like that is the only goal right. of a rate of return or breaking even. You know, and it's like, I know. I've pointed out many times in the past, especially early in my infinite banking career, you know, as a way to convey the power of life insurance. So here's a point in time in the mm-hmm. future that you break even. It's like, oh my gosh, I wish I could almost take it back. Right. Right. Kind of like Nelson wouldn't put an illustration in, becoming your own banker if he rewrote it. And I mm-hmm. understand why now. So later on in this section, he really- I was saying typical, uh, typical oh. life insurance, typically dividend paying life insurance or stock issued life insurance policies it takes 15 to 18 years to break even or more yeah yeah i mean space only yeah yeah sometimes 20 25 Mm -hmm. years i mean so this idea that 10 to 15 years is typical is not typical and the idea that three to five years as bad as it is is still better is good the idea that that is good is is wrong. Right. It is not good. And then <clears throat> speaking into the mech, you know, because you get all these questions all the time. What's ninety ten? What's wrong with ninety ten? And you talk about mecking in the future. You know, a mech is a rolling test, right? Okay. So, and it kind of goes back to the illustration that was printed in that one book that you won't reference, <laughs> rightly so. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I had a cow about it, so they published. They took the first publication off the market. I still have a box. They issued the second publication, right? And it has a second illustration, which is wrong too. They're both wrong, mm-hmm. right? The future problem with policies designed that way are exactly that. The problem is going to be in the future, and it and it will it will dang near assuredly happen. Mm-hmm. The problems, which is a mech problem, in the future, because of the thinking putting as little in as possible and getting as much out as possible. Yeah. You go to Las Vegas. Trying to contort it or manipulate it. You know, That's exactly it, what they it's, do. It's good. The, the contract is good. 
we, we there's what we need there. There's a future cash flow in the form of a death benefit. It's guaranteed. It's based on actuarial science. And future cash flows have present values. That's the cash value. You can collateralize it. It's all there. The, the, we have the right to pay the premium. It's You don't need to contort things to try to make it better than it is. Like you're going to yeah. get something by the oldest financial industry in the world. <laughs> like what are we talking about, you know? Um, okay. All right, so he gets into this section on this idea of a wash loan. I had not heard that term before. It's a uh, universal life term. Is it? Yeah, it's the same way with investment-grade life insurance. All that came mm-hmm. out in the 80s, whenever the life insurance industry, the weak defense. If you look, I mean, it, it just step back and look at what went on in the 80s. I mean, you've talked about it. We've talked about it, how the MEC rules came about. The Senate colluded with the financial industry and the term promoters. Dividend-paying life insurance companies showed up with a weak, the weakest of weak defenses because they were trying to be all things to all people, Mm -hmm. right? They wanted to be the financial institution, all things to all people. And then they uh, come up with universal life, right, to unbundle the product, separate the death benefit, the cost of the insurance, from the side account that earns interest, and oh, interest rates were very high in the 80s. Okay, well, what happened in the financial industry in the late 80s, in addition to the MEC rules? The Keogh plan, the 401k, the Mm. 401k. Oh, and all these financial institutions that, you know, that forgot their history, these whole life, uh, uh, mutual life insurance companies, like, oh, yeah, we're going to be all things to all people. We're going to offer 401Ks and IRAs, and we're going to do all this. Um, <clears throat> I'm just saying that a lot of things went on in the 80s, and if you back up, and you can kind of connect the dots. Mm-hmm. With Universal Life came this idea of a wash loan, an investment-grade life insurance. So when you hear the term investment-grade life insurance, it implies whatever kind of life insurance you have is less than this new investment-grade. Right? No wonder life insurance agents get you know a stigma. Those tech stocks in the 90s were investment grade. <laughs> well, you know, out. some of these hedge funds were doing really well until last week too, right? Yeah. I mean, which, you know, I don't want to keep dancing around that. <clears throat> you know, all these hedge fund companies that had that had short positions on these stocks. I mean, the first clue, the first clue, you hedge fund manager, maybe you should, like, get out of the business. You were short the wrong stock. You know, oh, my gosh. And got your lunch eaten by a couple of people <laughs> on a forum. <laughs> <laughs> that came together. The masses, if the masses would just come together, unbelievable power. It's like, I think fundamental technical analysis would have shown the uh, hedge fund managers that those stocks were shouldn't have been shorted to begin with. So just retire. Yeah. Okay, thanks. So this idea of the, of the wash loan. So he <laughs> says, with the wash loan, you're policy loan interest rate is the same as the dividend rate on the policy. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. And he says, so while you are paying 5% interest on the loan, that interest is completely offset by the 5% dividend on the loan. I mean, I struggle to even read the 
it's not, no, there's no dividend rate on the policy. There's a gross dividend crediting scale, refers to the company's overall financial performance, has only an indirect relationship with what you as a policy owner will actually receive, and you cannot find, you cannot reverse engineer that quote-unquote gross dividend crediting scale from an actual Enforce illustration. It won't be there. And by the way, I thought on this prior episode that we had done, this came to mind, I didn't say it though, uh, 40 years into the policy, your dividend will dwarf the premium. So does that mean the dividend rate on the policy is 5,000% in the 40th year? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. And then, and, and the interest rate say is, is 5%. So your, your, your net gain, your rate of return is 4,995%. It's a blind leading the blind. Yeah, it, it, it stuff falls apart real quick. So <clears throat> no, uh, a policy loan is a loan, and you, you know what the the underlying value, the underlying I'm sorry, the underlying collateral is has a guaranteed value. It's the only credit transaction in the world where the collateral is guaranteed, and not just guaranteed, but guaranteed by the, by the lender. Yep. So you're whereas in every other financial transaction, in every other credit transaction, you are compensating the lender for the lender's burden of uncertain collateral value in the future. If if you don't repay that loan and the lender has to repossess the asset that you collateralized to get the loan, there is a, a degree of uncertainty to some extent because things are only worth what people will pay for them. The future is uncertain and you don't know and the lender doesn't know how much someone will be willing to pay for that asset in the future. So there is a degree of uncertainty that uncertainty bears risk. Risk has cost and the company is getting compensated for that risk from you in some way. And I don't care if it's a 0% APR. I hate APR. I'm, I'm, at some point in the time, I will do a paper on APR and the whole Truth in Lending Act. Well, that, that means you got to do it. So don't talk about it unless you're going to do well, it. It will happen. <laughs> Is it, it, it going to come out after or before Murphy's joint work? <laughs> before. <laughs> it doesn't seem to ever be coming out. Well, that was a left arm <laughs> comment. <laughs> but um, I don't care what the APR is. With the quoted... You will pay in volume of interest dollars some way that they, they, it'll be amortized into the loan, it, you know, it closing cost, origination cost, fees. It'll be somewhere, right? The, the lender is getting compensated. In contrast, with a policy loan from a life insurance company, the value of the collateral, which is the death benefit, in the future is guaranteed. It's based on actuarial science. The company knows, the company is telling you what the value of that asset will be in the future. They're the ones providing the asset, right? They know. They're the ones with the actuaries. They know the mortality statistics. And so it's not a secret, which means that when you pay interest on a policy loan, you are not compensating the company for the uncertainty of the collateral in the future. All you're doing is accounting for the time value of money. You're meeting the minimum return that the company needs in order to guarantee the death benefit. The reason they can guarantee the death benefit, the reason the collateral on the policy loan is guaranteed is because they know they're going to earn revenue. It's either going to come from you or it's going to come from a high-grade uh, municipal bond or high-grade real estate. They it's going to come from somewhere. And so the idea that it would be a bad thing 
to contribute to that. The idea that policy loan interest is bad is fundamentally flawed. You're contributing to the revenue of a company <laughs> you own. What? Now, wait a minute. That's going to pay you a dividend. If you pay a premium <clears throat> and, uh, in exchange for the death benefit, the cash value, and all of the other attributes of the contract, and the death benefit, and I've said it many times, i say it over and over and over, that is a future obligation to the company. The cash value is a future obligation to the company. Mm -hmm. If any point in time in the future I can look forward and have a guaranteed walk away, and then there's a, an unguaranteed component, non-guaranteed component of the dividend, and the combination of those is a total of a cash value and a total of a death benefit, future obligations to the company. So if I'm paying all this premium, that premium is theirs, it is not mine, it is theirs, and they have to put that premium the net they got it. you know what you don't work for free i don't work for free nobody in the home office works for free the bond traders don't oh, they act like it sometimes <laughs> <laughs> so the company has to put that money to work to meet the future obligations is that difficult did we have to get above third grade math a second grade concept i'm i'm, I'm serious yeah okay so all right if they go into the open market through the muni bonds or the corporate bonds or the high-grade corporate real estate and earn a 5% rate of return, right, and that's where the capital is deployed. Pray tell, what should they charge me or anyone who's borrowing the money from the life insurance company? If I have to take, it's deployed over here and it's earning 5%, should I be benevolent and give it to you at zero? Right. Why should I, why would I want a company that I'm an ownership position, I have an ownership position in, why would I want them to lose money? You know, we kind of talked about this with that Dave Ramsey, that, that god awful idea that, you know, uh, Home Depot is overcharging me <laughs> if they pay me a dividend. If I buy stock in Home Depot, and I have a rise in value, appreciation in the stock value, or I receive a dividend, it means they charged me, the consumer, if I shop at Home Depot, they overcharged me for whatever I'm buying to pay me a dividend. Yeah. I mean, how can you apply these ideas and these concepts in one area and completely the exact opposite in another area? Because you're biased. <laughs> That's why yeah. you can do that. Okay. And we're on, let me, let me, because look, you've got the page all marked up. I have very few marks in here. I just, out of the second article in 2020, mm -hmm. I think I highlighted two things and I found the truth. I found this guy's truth right here. It's in print. Number three, most of those talking about this concept stand to profit from it. In the first line, it says the biggest issue with IBBOI leap is the people pushing it. And now I'm going to interject his biggest issue with this whole idea is, quote unquote, the people pushing it. Because nearly all of them stand to profit from you buying into this concept. I digress. That's true. He should stop practicing medicine mm. for a profit or just continue to be a hypocrite grace for me and law for you yeah i can earn an income as long as we don't call it a commission and whatever i put my hand to but you sir in the financial industry especially as a life insurance agent quote unquote salesman you have a, a lesser character because you earn a commission 
Yeah. They may be selling seminars, books, or online courses, but most commonly they are simply selling whole life insurance, hoping to earn those fat commissions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they're supposed to do the seminars and the books and the online courses for free. Right. They should just be doing that. You know. Here, look, look, I'm going to bring in a comment here. Okay. Okay. Right in the middle. Oh, yeah. No, that's know. perfect. That's yeah, yeah. So you sprung all this on me, I'll spring this on you. Okay. Oh, this. <laughs> he does this. He saves comments. He doesn't let me see them before the show. And then, so he hits them with me in the middle. Totally it's, just, it's the same as him. He's walking in all geared up with topics. And I'm like, I've got nothing. <laughs> oh, we talked about this two months ago in a conversation. <laughs> right. Okay. So this is Jack V on the 23rd of January. So it's okay. last week or so. Jesus Christie, still selling life insurance? I think they're all pretty much bankrupt and way overvalued, just like everything else listed on the stock exchange. The way overvalued minimum of 40% on the good majority up to 80. Oh, and I'm really cleaning this up. You know, it's like- You Jack, are, you're being kind. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, I barely speak English, but my gosh, man. Okay. They all go bankrupt. All of those- they go bankrupt, all of those contributions for nothing. Why not become a bullion dealer and sell that as insurance? Because in over 4,000 years, that has never been anything better for insurance than silver. Yeah, I'm, like, I'm like exhausted. I know, and this is why we don't release these kinds of comments and questions. And so Jack, I would encourage you to continue to educate yourself, yes, and I made a statement earlier. I'm buying life insurance too, but I am a salesman. I do sell life insurance and I do get paid commissions. Um, but the idea that, that like everything on Wall Street, they're overrated. So you're not listening very much and you're surely not reading, right? <clears throat> you're not listening because we're, we're talking about mutual life insurance companies that are not publicly traded. Now, I may agree with you somewhat on your sentiments of Wall Street because it's not designed for you. And last week's lesson with Reddit, if you can't figure that out, you might need to rethink your thinking. Yeah. Okay. Um, so these companies are overvalued, blah, blah, blah. And how do you know how mm. what we do with bullion? How do you know? You're assuming, just like this guy's assuming he knows something about life insurance and he's done enough reading to write about it. Um, how do you know? You don't know. You don't know how much gold Mr. Griggs owns or how much silver he's waiting for the Reddit group to short up to $1,000 <laughs> an ounce. And then just because precious metals have never gone to zero in 4,000 years, I don't know, there's 6,000 years of recorded history, isn't there? Well. I mean, I'm just saying, it's, um, thanks for the comment. We're talking about mutual life insurance companies that are not traded publicly. And no, they have not all gone to zero in value. Yeah, there's the, the underlying idea there is that, you know, we talk about life insurance as a show about infinite banking. It's called bank on, it's called. Uh, what? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's it, it, we, we, it, it's about the IBC. Life. Like we, we get that, but <laughs> we're not you saying. You don't even know what the show's name is. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> like, there's like seven different top things in here. What we're not saying is that all you should do is pay a premium and go home and go to bed. This is about securing the banking function. It's about the optimal accumulation and deployment of capital. That's it. That's what this is about. 
we're not saying that investing or starting a business or being entrepreneurial is a bad thing. Whoa, wait, starting a business, <clears throat> talk about investing. Right. Oh my gosh, the most important thing that you or anyone, myself included, can invest in is yourself. It is you. And whatever it is you want to put your hand to, invest in that. And if you don't know what you put your hand to, continue to study. Don't listen, everybody, Jim Rohn can serve as an example of what to do or a warning of what not to do. Okay, don't be like Jack B. It's a warning of don't, you know, don't, don't act like this. Don't act like, you know, don't get the arrival syndrome like you know everything. And you, there's nothing else for you to learn. No. That's a warning of what not to do. I'm just saying, invest in yourself. And if you don't know what to put your hand to, keep investing in keep your capitalizing. knowledge. Keep capitalizing, yeah. Oh my gosh. The opportunities will come. All right, number four. Truth number four of seven. It, the IBC, it allows you to earn more on your cash in the long term. He says here, the real benefit of infinite banking is that you will probably earn a little more on your cash over the course of your life than you would in a bank account at the cost of a few years of crummy returns on your money. Seriously, that's it. Yeah, I mean, he, he clearly has never opened becoming your own banker. Yeah. <clears throat> a cursory he, glance at the illustration. He's read a couple of books on investing and went to a couple of blogs to start his blog as a physician, right? Yeah. And to reach out to help his fellow physicians out of the goodness of his heart, because obviously he's a nonprofit. Right. He goes on here, proponents want you to compare borrowing from life insurance, which you don't do, but I'm quoting, borrowing from life insurance to borrowing from the bank. Wouldn't it be nice, they say, if you could always qualify for a loan to buy your next house, car, RV, or boat? But that is the wrong comparison. You should not be comparing borrowing against your policy to borrowing from the bank. You should compare borrowing against your policy to withdrawing money from your savings account. Okay, that's straight up false. Totally my, wrong. Yeah, my uh, 2019 Nelson Nash Institute talk, Why Nelson is an Heir to Manger, which is on YouTube, explains this in depth. The, no, that is exactly the comparison you should be making is between borrowing from a life insurance company as opposed to borrowing from a bank or any other third party conventional lender because it's, the, the question is credit, right? We're, we're, we're borrowing money. We're leveraging asset value. When you withdraw money from a savings account, you are liquidating capital, you're spending it down. You're decreasing the value. It's a key distinction. You, you, it is, it, it's the opposite of leverage. It's the, exact, the opposite the exact of opposite. borrowing. So <clears throat> this is just blatantly wrong. <laughs> it's flat wrong. I want to get up and qualify, have somebody else go over and judge me, my, my finances and my character. I want to have... I want to qualify. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes, I do have to qualify to buy life insurance. He talked a little bit about that, too. Goes into some oh, yeah, go figure. All right. And then he says here at the end of this particular section, uh, IBC is really is not about banking on yourself it is simply a different way to invest your money and we talked about this before no life insurance is not an investment uh, in fact it puts you in a position to be a better investor what because if you are well capital you never heard of an overcapitalized investor right you've just 
it may not have the vocabulary or the terminology put it this way, you're just familiar with a lot of people who don't have a lot of capital, who are extremely what? undercapitalized and trying to invest. That's like a bank being undercapitalized. You ever heard of a bank being undercapitalized? Hmm, nope. You know what happens to them if they get in that position? <laughs> not good. They get liquidated, right? <laughs> Something like having too much capital is a bad thing. Yeah. Especially if it's in a life insurance policy that's a private asset that you own and control and have contractual rights. Yeah, that's terrible. 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 And then you could be in the position of qualifying for a loan or whatever it is you're borrowing because he, you know, needs to qualify. Yeah. And then truth number five, the other benefits he does mention here that life insurance has certain degrees of asset protection. And yes, personally owned life insurance is the most creditor protected asset on the planet. Wonder um, why. Hmm, yeah. Hmm. Uh, number six, it is not magic. Uh, correct. And, and a lot of the agents who sell as if it were magic should stop. But yes, it's not magic. Um, he, he really gets upset when people choose not to use the government to invest their money and instead want to purchase a private asset. And that really upsets him. Well, if he you were, probably likes the government telling him how to practice medicine. Mm, yeah, I bet. Yeah. Right. Big brother got the strong man, the savior. Yeah. I don't know he, what to do. Please he, tell me. Here's your real estate line. This does not replace real estate investing. It is simply a way to save up money to buy real estate that will actually build your wealth. Mm. Where's that? By the way, where are those rents going to go? What? Hmm. Where's he going to save the money up? Huh? Huh? Is it a, maybe in a, at a bank that he doesn't own? Yeah, maybe. Hmm. Paying a dividend to their shareholders? Hmm. Yeah, not him because he doesn't own it. Hmm. Hmm. And then he said, this, "I don't understand that." He said, "Some people selling these policies argue that you are not interrupting compound is, interest if you borrow from your policy rather than withdraw from your bank account. That is not the case. It interrupts it in exactly the same way. The money you borrow out earns nothing." Okay. <laughs> that, 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 is, that is the literal opposite. Like, I think that there's just a factual misunderstanding here. Some, <clears throat> there is some, but they're still steep, deeply in bias. Well, yeah, but, but that's the point of borrowing against the cash value. And he goes back and forth on, uh, it's just like capital in the Austrian economics literature. Sometimes they'll refer to it and you can tell they're referring to like, Actually, like machines and equipment and stuff that you use to make other stuff. And then in the next freaking paragraph, they'll talk about it as if it were financial value. Yep. Like there's, we switch between the meanings. And yep. he's done that here. He switches between uh, borrowing from a policy or borrowing against a policy. And that lackadaisical back and forth betrays the fact that he doesn't really understand how these loans work and, and why it's important to understand them. Because no, you you are absolutely securing the compounding effect by not withdrawing money from the policy or partially surrendering surrendering for some of the cash value. You're borrowing against it. You're keeping all the value there. <laughs> so yes, it is compounding. And I go back to this, and I think it's the most important little formula out there is that the cash value is the net present value of the death benefit, which means that part of that computation is time. So, so long as time is going by, so long as the clock is ticking, the present value of that future cash flow, the value of your cash value in the whole life policy must be increasing. And I don't even care if it says so on the little company's online portal. Technology's got to catch up, right? The fact of the matter is, so long as time is going by, net present values must be increasing. It, it, it's just a, that's how time works. And so there's your compounding. 
right? The annual increases, the regular uninterrupted increases gives you compounding, which doesn't exist in any other asset because the value of every other asset is only worth what somebody else will pay for them. And it's only in life insurance where the company is telling you what they will pay for it should you choose to exercise that option in the future. I agree. This Unless is the government wrong. wants to value your assets and then the fair market value is out the window. It's by decree, they'll tell you what their your property's worth so yeah. they can set their taxes. Speaking of which, num <laughs> speaking of which, number seven, it is not revolutionary. A lot of people that buy into this concept also buy into conspiracy theories about the world, its governments, and its banking systems. Oh, I missed that one. Dang it. I mean... <clears throat> well, he mentioned earlier, I don't know if it's in this article or the previous one that we had talked about earlier in the previous part one, that uh, the, the benefit of uh, asset protection, he said, and he referenced himself, some people like myself. Because he's worried about getting sued, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, in, in number seven, it's not re revolutionary. It's like, um, he goes on to say that, you know, it's like, it's not a scam, but it's frequently sold, the way it's sold is scamming, which, which I agree with that. It's not a magic way to build well, but it may help you earn a little uh, higher rate of return on your invested cash in the long run, blah, blah, blah. But he, he ends up with this and provide a bit of asset protection that you probably don't need. He needs it, <laughs> but not you. It's like, well, what is it, man? It's like, I love it. Yeah, and he peppers in little things. He said, like, like your investments, your life insurance Ugh. should be boring. I mean... <clears throat> well, you know, it's like Western medicine. I can go to South America. We're still in the Western Hemisphere, right? <laughs> I mean... Ugh. He uh, there's two things here. He says your money is still denominated in dollars, subject to inflation. And Nelson covered. Wait a minute. So if we have inflation, it won't be subject to to being denominated in dollars. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The people ask us. It's like you know. I don't. And I went through this the other week with the clients. Like I don't care what what goes on with the money supplier. If I, you know, I, I'm putting in a certain amount of dollars, and every year the value is going up. So what? even if it is the case that the value of the dollar is depreciating, not in my contract. In my contract, those dollars are buying more and more. That's within a with, terrible position to be in. Yeah, within the contract, your money is appreciating. The purchasing power of your premium dollars is increasing. I've said many times over the last 16 or 17 years, the best hedge against inflation on the cash flow is life insurance structured this way. Um, I, I frequently go back to Nelson's state farm policy and he bought it in the 50s and he's teaching about it in the 2000s and it paying a little bitty premium, you know, and a whole lot of inflation happened in <laughs> 1971, hello, breaking from the, the Bretton Woods system, going totally off the gold standard. A lot of money supply in creation and Therefore, price inflation happened between the 50s and 2000s. A, is well, that conspiracy? That's a fact. St. Louis Fed Fred. You can go look it up for yourself. The, uh, was Nelson upset that he has this right to pay a premium for these a multiple of an increase in cash value in that year just because there'd been inflation? No, he no. had switched from the dividend reducing the premium to actually paying the premium. To wanting to pay more. And he had bought a lot more life insurance policies. So yeah. Did not have a PUA, uh, additional PUA. Just The PUA was just a place for the dividend to be paid. And, and, and by the way, that medical practice and those real estate investments and your tax-qualified plan money, all that's denominated in U.S. dollars too. What? Yeah. 
So it's not like all the interest that he pays on those credit cards are denominated in U.S. dollars too. Because yep. I mean, why would he pay ten or twelve percent on his credit card and only earn four or five percent in his investment account? I mean, one number is bigger than the other. <laughs> he ends with, "If it is making you excited and you feel a need to go proselyte, proselyte, proselytize, I think he wants to say proselytize it to your friends and family. You are likely mistakenly buying into the scammier aspects of the concept. Infinite banking is not a scam, but the way it is sold frequently feels scammy. It is not a magic way to build wealth, but may help you earn a little higher rate of return on your invested cash in the long run and provide a bit of asset protection that you probably don't need. Like you said, he needs it, but not you. Yeah. By the way, control F, do a little search for the word capital in these articles and it will return precisely zero results, right? <laughs> so there's, there's, no, there, there's nothing in here about controlling the banking function, about being in charge of capital, about systematic, uh, building and accumulation of capital throughout your lifetime. That, because if that discussion, if that were the frame of the discussion, then you couldn't fight this. You, there's, and that's why they don't talk in those terms. They that, don't. That's why you got to uh, import the terminology and the concepts that have been imposed upon us by Wall Street in order to try to understand something that is fundamentally different. Um, and so it's and, not it's not going to work. Yeah, and you got to play on other people's misconception. You know, Nelson, you know, said many times, and I completely agree that you know most people's understanding of life insurance is based on somebody else's misconception. So you take these ideas that the life insurance salesman is bad, commissions are bad, and that you know it's your own money. You're borrowing, you're paying interest to borrow your own money, and if you die, the evil company keeps your cash value. I mean, we've all been saturated in this noise, yeah, and you've got to. You've got to have a healthy dose of noise spread amongst the some terminology that may be, you know, correct but misapplied to have a healthy amount of, you know, lies covered in sugar to make mm -hmm. it acceptable. So, like, yeah, yeah, it resonates with me. Yeah, why would I? Why would I pay somebody to borrow my own money, you know, and oh my gosh, the evil life insurance company is going to keep my cash value if I die. And I don't need a death benefit anyway. And that typically comes from somebody who uh, can't afford to pay a premium or they have lived a life that has caused them. And I'm not saying everybody that has a health issue was done on purpose or by choice, but the individual who has lived a life smoking and drinking and you know, all of these things. They know that you've got to answer health questions to get an application or to, to complete an application. I mean, they're not going to be all warm and fuzzy. Mm -hmm. Or the guy that's 79 who his daddy was a world, you know, uh, big producer of New York life insurance in the 20s and retired with a million dollar line of credit in the <sighs> 20s. Amazing. Right. The grandson who, you know, his father squandered all the money that the grandfather produced and knew the, the value of life insurance. You know, and the, when the grandson's in his 70s, right, and couldn't and wouldn't follow mm. the path that the grandfather laid out for them, oh, right, whenever they say, ah, you know, I'm too old. Yes, <laughs> yes. And your thinking was wrong, you know, 50 years prior. So and my point is, if I'm smoking and drinking all day long, 
for 10, 15 years and my health reflects that, I'm not going to feel good about having to, you know, fill out a bunch of health questions. Oh, wait a minute. If I don't have any money, if I have no money, I have zero money or very little money, and I've got to go apply for credit, right? And I've got to disclose all my financials, as paltry as they are. How am I going to get a warm and fuzzy feeling, mm. you know, having to apply for credit? I'm not. Yeah. So... And it's just part of the noise. Just because somebody else has made a mistake doesn't mean you should, right? Or that you have to. Mm-hmm. It's It gets back to the example and the warning, right? Be an example. Follow the examples. Don't be a warning. And then pay attention to the warnings. Okay. I can get preachy too. Listen, <laughs> we have all these good comments. You know, you had a bunch of comments. Is, is it, is, you want to do them? Yeah, why not? Okay. I mean, I know you're hungry, but you can I you can am. hang out. Barbecue's calling my name. But no, let's do a few. So, um, Well, let me read this one too because it goes off the bullion comment, the negative comment okay. earlier, the guy. This is Mr. Daly uh, in January 22, January 22nd of 2021. Hey, do you young gentlemen own any gold? Thank you for that. By the way, your videos are the best videos anyone can stumble upon on YouTube. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. Seriously. Well, Mr. or Mrs. Daly, Ryan, do you own any gold? So I have, you know, Nelson told a story about how he was robbed and uh, he has other stories about his experience with silver and in his second book this experience with silver. Yeah. I used to have a lot more than I have now. Uh, but it was stolen. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> the first labor-saving device. Mm-hmm. Right. The short answer is yeah. I love numismatic. I love the artwork on old coinage. Old coinage. You know. Um, so the short answer is yes. I love precious metals and yep. numismatic coins and things. So that's fine. You know, I, I like how you put it very plainly. It's like whatever you know something about. Well, and let me say, too, here in 2021, you know, with the conspiracy theorists and all that, you know, precious metals, I mean, you specifically reference gold, a precious metal, right? Palladium, palladium, platinum, silver, very common gold and silver, but I also like the other metals, too. Brass, lead, the delivery system, right? Okay, and if we break down into the Stone Age, which I don't believe we are, you know, I think whiskey, tobacco, water filters, a lot of things become valuable. Mm Mm-hmm which I enjoy owning those too. Yeah. Okay. All right, Mr. Butler, Wing Butler. Yeah. Wing, my boy. I have a question about the stumbling block between, you know, uh, let's, I'll just say, he and I, I take both of you out weekly whenever I do the yard. Uh, it's oh so good. Uh, at about 23 minutes uh, into this particular episode, whichever one he was talking about two months ago, oh, blowing up infinite banking noise. Part one. Episode 73, yeah, part one. Uh, wow, 73. A lot of these. Wow. Um, Coming up on 100, we're going to have to do something special. Yeah. We'll have a conversation about it so that you can forget it, and then by the time it comes around. <laughs> 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 At about 23 minutes, James says that you said you should should have wrote a premium check first before paying this particular family member. I've had the same epiphany, but then my old self retorts back by saying, you have to pay it back. So it's like you have to come up with $2 for every one that you take or borrow. <clears throat> a dollar to pay the premium. Then you got to borrow it out and then another dollar to pay it back down. What principle am I missing here? I get brain damage every time I think about it. Could you share in a podcast sometime and maybe use an example? Uh, 
yes, you are missing something, but it's okay. It's a common thing. Uh, you're forgetting the capitalization part. You're initiating a capital creation process that will last for the rest of your life and that will then benefit your people. Premium. So you're, you're doing two things, right? You're not just... Uh, paying for uh, you're not just paying the family member you're not just buying the lawnmower you're not just doing whatever that thing is you're also initiating a capital generation process that will continue on uninterrupted with compounding on a guaranteed basis for the rest of your life right and in the initial phase if you've just started with I know he's your client I don't know how long he's been a client but if you've just started that's where you are you're just starting with that capital generation process but again think long range this is about building a banking infrastructure, a capital infrastructure that you will go back to again. Those That premium dollar that resulted in cash value that you borrowed against to pay the family member in this case is the same premium dollar that led to the same cash value that you'll borrow against again in the future over and over again to pay for the next family member to finance the uh, passive cash flow later in life to compensate to partially finance your lifestyle right that you're going to go back to that well in the future so this isn't just a one-off this is iterative there's going to be it's a dynamic process that's going to it this will happen again and again in the future and you're going to get to a point in that contract where the cash value you have that you've built with premium far and away exceeds how much premium you've paid in and so the if we look at it in this one frame for the one transaction in the short term, yes, you're going to have brain damage thinking about, well, why the hell would I do that? Well, it's because the value here <laughs> manifests over the long term. That's my response to that. Uh, thank you. That was very good. <clears throat> and we, you know, I got to say that uh, the, uh, I think I called him Uncle Guido. And this epiphany happened to me, and I think that's what I was discussing in in this episode. I'm sitting in the parking lot, and it was in April. I had been practicing the infinite banking concept for about four years, mm -hmm. and I had to write a check to Uncle Guido, Uncle Sam. So he's not really a family member. He's that uninvited partner that's in your life, you know? And so I'm writing a honking check to the IRS because I pay my taxes. And it just dawned on me that that should have been a premium first. I, has, I should have taken a loan against policies that I had owned and paid premium into to pay that. Now, I had, at that time, I had already, you know, uh, did uh, me medical deductibles, dental, credit cards, automobiles. It's not like I was sleepwalking, right? <clears throat> but it was just such a a large amount that I had to pay to Uncle Sam and it just should have been a premium first and I always equate it to like a guy shaving you know every day you shave and then four years into it you're like oh my gosh there's a nose on my face mm -hmm. plain as his day how did I miss that um, and then if I continue we should all be saving quote unquote saving and I know that saving gets a bad term a bad rap cash is trash and all of these negative things but you need access to capital. And how many gatekeepers do you want between you and capital? Mm. Just tell me. Right? And if you don't want any, you should be building cash, capital, where you have control and you have access. And that should be a lifelong habit. Right? Don't, this idea of saving money up and big piling up a big you know, 
pile of cash and then spending it down in retirement is hogwash. Right, you should, the people, my clients, I've done this a long time, as they age and they retire, they don't change the way they live mm. and they shouldn't, mm-hmm. right? If you've been a saver your whole life, you're gonna continue to be a saver and you're gonna be the example that I always encourage you to be because people are paying attention whether you know it or not. So that cash flow of savings is exactly that. Some people put it in IRAs, 401ks, or their real estate investment, or whatever it is they do, there's a cash flow in, all right? And now, if that cash flow is a premium, and it should be, all right, that is what that cash flow is. Now, if I have capital that I can collateralize, it's no different than a guy saving for a 401k or whatever. I don't want to just beat up qualified plans because I don't mean to do that. They're saying that somebody's diligently saving, and if you're not, you should, okay? But if you're diligently piling up saving money somewhere, does not mean that you're not spending money and borrowing money. You're not using a credit card. You're not financing automobiles or whatever it is, these major purchases you're financing. So I hope that helps. You should be saving money somewhere and you should continue enjoying the life that you live or want to live. Mm-hmm. You should just control that banking function. Good. All right. Next is Billy Carter, also commenting <coughs> on the same episode, number 73. Hey, guys. Fantastic channel. Thank you. I was wondering if there is a way for the quote unquote customer to tell if there is a practitioner from the NNI site had set up a policy or policies correctly. I heard you guys mention in the past that practitioners from NNI have and do set up IBC policies wrong. I had never heard you guys mention if there was a way to gauge as a customer if the policy is set up correctly. If you had already talked about this, I'm sorry. And if you did, can you reference an episode? I'll re-listen. Thank you for taking the time to make these videos and audios. I appreciate it. Thank you for acknowledging the time, effort, and energy it takes yeah. to do this. Um, sticky subject, <clears throat> you know? Um, yeah, I've, I've seen illustrations from other people who either are or have been in the past on the Nelson Nash Institute Practitioner Finder. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, I'm familiar with a lot of these people. I like a lot of them, you know, met, met a lot of them, um, but just, and this isn't any knocker, it's just a fact. I don't know how other people run their businesses and I don't know what they're doing. And so to condemn or praise other people's work would be coming from a place of ignorance. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult to say, is there a way to tell? Well, yeah, I mean, if I look at the policy and I have a conversation with you and I get to understand your financial circumstances and gauge your understanding of the concept, I can tell you specifically individually whether a, a policy is correct for your situation, but that it's a very individualized kind of thing. Um, there are things in general that we can say about policy structure and policy design that would help you analyze a contract for yourself. Uh, So we've talked a lot about 1090, right? Having too little, too small of a base premium in the overall contract. I mean, it really comes down to philosophy. You can't gauge the propriety or the efficacy of a contract without asking whether it aligns with your philosophy. And in order to do that, you got to articulate your philosophy, which most people don't do. And so In my world, with my clients, the idea is you should have the ability to pay as much premium as you can reasonably foresee yourself wanting the ability to pay for as long as you might want to pay it. And you don't know how long that's going to be, but it might be a long time. So we'd like to get as long as possible with as much ability to pay premium as possible, subject to 
your financial circumstances, right? Your ability to pay. You can't have too much capital, so you can't have too much cash value, so you can't pay too much premium. The problem is that you and me don't make enough money, right? So the contract's got to be built with your particular circumstances in mind. And the goal over the course of your lifetime should be, again, philosophical point, to end up with exactly the number of policies you need to pay exactly the amount of premium that you ended up wanting the ability to pay given your future cash flow experiences, both income and on the expense side. Now, we don't know that. We don't know what the future is going to be, but we can get pretty close by asking the right questions. And so maybe we're one off. Maybe you end up with one policy or two policies more, or maybe you end up not being able to pay as much premium as you ended up having the ability to pay. That's okay, but we're, we're going to get close. So consequently, if you've got a contract that by design must stop accepting premium in, let's say, the eighth policy year, like a lot of these 1090 contracts must be built, then that, that structure does not align with, in fact, conflicts with what I want to end up being in a position to do. And so we might say in that scenario, this particular structure is wrong. There's the flip side where there's a contract with uh, not enough, that should have even more base premium than normal because there's other issues that come up. If someone really understands the infinite banking concept, they understand suitability and maximum insurance that uh, that the industry will allow to have in force in one person's life. You may not want to have all that death benefit up right up front in your first policy or policies. You may know that your income is going to in- increase. You may know and be confident in your future ability to pay premium. And so you may know that you're going to have to apply for more policies in the future. And every time you apply for a new contract, the industry is going to ask how much life insurance, how much death benefit do you have in force on your life at that time? Because they got to underwrite it. These state commissions, the National Association of Insurance Commissioners care whether you're buying too much life insurance. Stupid thing. But that's the way the industry works, and so you, you're cognizant. I just went with this, went through this in my in the policy I just got. It's got more base. I pay more in base on my policies than what you see in becoming your own banker. What? Yeah, because I don't <clears throat> want to have. If I have a big old honking PUA relative to my base premium, I'm going to have to get a lot more death benefit through a term rider in order for that contract to remain MET compliant. So I'm advancing forward in the future. I'm advancing closer to me in time the amount of death benefit I have on my life. And death benefit's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that. But when it comes to applying for a contract, when it comes to underwriting, it can be a problem, right? Uh, everybody, I said, and, and it's going to happen. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to everybody who diligently practices the infinite banking concept. You'll end up being fully insured at some point. The idea is to push that out into the future, <laughs> you know, so that you can continue to add the ability to pay premium on products you own where you're the insured. It's going to happen so, soon enough. That was very, very well said. Very well said. And so the short answer, though, is no, it's very difficult to look at a life insurance illustration and say, oh, this is right or this is wrong. Yeah. So it, it does have to be specific. But you can bet that anytime an advisor starts off with this is a correct split 90 percent mm. to the pua or 95 percent to the pua and five or ten percent to the base when they start off with that it's wrong when they start off with you need to get a heloc mm. to fund properly fund a policy that's wrong 99 percent of the time right so 
And when Ryan says that these illustrations or these policies built this way limits what you can put in it sometime in the future, and he, I believe you said year eight, um, you may not be able to see that. The inability yeah. to pay a premium beyond the seventh or eighth or ninth or tenth year in the illustration. Uh, and I pointed out many times in the illustration is not a contract, but there are full disclosures and most of the time they're in bold. So <laughs> an agent, you know, that can read, uh, I don't know. <laughs> um, I'm just saying they, they build illustrations that they know full well that you can't do or they don't know what they're building and they don't know that you can't do what they're illustrating in the future. Yeah. And then when you, when you accept the contract, when you actually pay the premium, that consideration is given. The exchange, the coverage is in force, the premium is paid, then you've accepted that contract. And then there's a free look time period and all that. But that assumes, and and rightly so, that you have agreed with all of the disclaimers and all of the disclosures, and you've accepted that. Okay. Um, and then he also referenced in his well-spoken uh, response, Billy, whenever he says that there's a certain amount of debt, we all have a limited insurability. We, we're all very limited in what we can pay in premium as a percentage of gross income mm -hmm. and how much total enforced face amount we can have from all sources based on a factor of our income and our age. It's limited. So... If we're going to try to get 100% or very close to 100% cash in year one or two, then we're having to buy an awful lot of death benefit through a term rider or some kind of a term variation, right, to raise the death benefit up, to avoid the MEC, to have the high cash value in the PUA. You're eating up your insurability. And it may not mean anything or it may not seem that important to you on your first policy. Um, but you're not going to be able to expand. You're not going to be able to continue to purchase policies as you develop in your understanding and your application. And you're going to therefore limit yourself. And it's, and it's, it's I don't want to say it's tragic, but it's very disappointing. Yeah. Whenever, you know, I practice for some time period and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is as good as I thought or better than I thought. I want to continue and I'm limited and I can't. That's where I am right now. Yeah. Because they need updated financials. Yeah. How, how, how do you like that? You know, it's like, oh, can I please have this? No. Yeah. Well, so. obviously you're not making enough in commission. You need to raise your income. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, emoji dinosaur. Uh, 14 minutes on blowing up infinite banking noise part two episode 77 ryan is a straight shooter do you do policies in arizona i sure do fill out the greg's capital strategies fill out the get in touch form one of these people said that he's been trying to get in touch with me for a while and that he hadn't been successful he i don't know if that's true because you don't answer your phone and you don't return your email i respond to my but well, if that is the case, and I admit, I mean, I'm imperfect too. Keep trying. <laughs> this contact information is below. Yeah. Maybe we'll put your cell phone in there. Maybe not. Maybe that's what we <laughs> won't do. <laughs> uh, it, four months ago from episode 48, uh, uh, is it difficult to structure one of these policies? I mean, not now, but 
you know, asked me four years ago and like, yeah, I don't, I don't even know what structuring a policy meant. So um, it's a profession for a reason. I mean, there's, you know, Ooh. you know. Uh, the next one. When is, is it yes or no, man? Come on. Uh, I would th- yes for. I mean, clearly, if you look at some of these <laughs> other <laughs> agents' contracts, it's more difficult for something. Something than must others. be hard. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't, but um, yeah. But you did. But I did. All right. Uh, five months ago. When is the next seminar? Uh, what a great question. When you're allowed to have events again, I guess. Although maybe we should go to Florida and do something. Whatever. It's like, look, we, we had a, an event, you know, I mean, we used to do events in my office like a lot. <clears throat> so we had one scheduled last year before the, uh, you know, the situational science came about <laughs> and, uh, and the venues wouldn't allow you to hold them, right? Yeah. And uh, so, you know, like you said, Florida, you mentioned that for a reason. Everybody's moving to Florida, right? Wall Street's moving to Florida. Everybody's moving to Florida. I bet the realtors down there are going nuts. Oh, yeah. So unless things uh, open up in Texas, we more than likely will go to Florida have an event, to have an event. But when... I don't know yet, but you'll be the first to know. You will know. Or actually, the clients will be the first to know. And if you're just an ordinary, random, dedicated listener, no no disparagement, you'll be the second to know. There you go. Endless relaxation says. That's what I want. All right. I hear what you are saying about putting as much as you can into one policy, but what if you can never afford to put as much as a hundred grand a year into a policy, which means you will never be able to afford to max out a policy before starting another one? Does that mean you should only have one policy? We, as a family, got a policy for each of us, including our kids who are nine and 12 at the time, so that we could get the benefit of starting the kids early and transferring the policy to them when they are older. Do you think that was a bad idea? We didn't do any laddering. We just got... We just each got a policy. Well, without knowing who you are or what your circumstances are, so just hypothetically here, there is nothing wrong with having death benefit in force on every family member. So no, that based on what's here, that does not sound like laddering. Um, if you are every, by the way, you and everybody else is limited on how much premium they can pay. I don't care if it's a hundred grand or a hundred million. Everybody's got a limit, right? Like I said earlier, we're all limited by how much income we have. So if the policies you have are sufficient in terms of what they'll accept in premium for you to pay what you want to pay, then there's no reason to go get another one, right? The, the, the time to expand, the time to get another policy, setting the death benefit question aside, it's legitimate to have death benefit enforced on everybody in the family. And what you say about transferring the policy to the kids when they're older, they're gonna have a head start, you're way ahead of the game, that's all legitimate. There's other value, there's other use in having those multiple policies in this sort of intergenerational context. But you should have as much policies as you need to pay the premium you wanna pay. The time to expand is when your income goes up, your expenses go down, or a combination of both such that you've got money stacking up in somebody else's bank. Well, that assumes that the first one was built with their maximum limitations, you know, going up to their limitations on premium, right? And so it's quite often that I see people start too small. I know I did. Most people do. Everybody. I haven't seen anybody who hasn't. Right. So as soon as you can wrap your mind around the next policy, you should 
purchase your next policy. And I think, too, I'm glad he mentioned the fact that $100,000, you know, you see all these illustrations of 150, 300, or a million, or 500. And then it's very, it's also very easy to do the um, the idea of like an 80-20 or a 90-10 policy. You know, if I pay $100,000 in premium, then that means there's only going to be $10,000 to the base, mm-hmm. right? Well, what if you, what if you, or, and, and I'm an advocate of starting where you're comfortable. I mean, expanding, you know, not not shortchanging yourself. I mean, they should be real numbers. I, I say often, look, if we, if we determine a premium amount and it doesn't cause you to think, well, <laughs> then it's probably a lot, not a legitimate number. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if your wife doesn't look at you and raise an eyebrow and say, where are you going to get all that money? It, it's probably too much, but now we're getting into the ballpark of, <laughs> yeah. you know, real numbers. They're your numbers, not mine, right? Okay. So what if I'm only, um, I'm only, I only, you know, um, uh, what is appropriate for me is maybe 2,500 a year or 5,000 a year. And if you do that 90-10 construct, you can't even do that because then the base, mm. by implication, has to be 250 a year or 500. You know, so they're, my point is, I'm making several points, right? Um, you should start where you're at and where you're comfortable and with legitimate numbers for you. Working with an agent who is not practicing on you, okay, that may have some experience and maybe they actually do it themselves. <laughs> Look, yeah. you'd be surprised how many home office people don't own life insurance. So when I say this over and over Having and over. Having talked with them a bit, I am no longer surprised. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's like, listen, just because somebody has a life insurance license, you know, it's the same as just because somebody has a medical license. Yeah. You know, it doesn't mean they're an expert in all areas. You completed some government process and, exactly. and that's what you did. Okay. Next question. Here's a good question. I, it's important that you know you have a good question. Um, what information are they, are they saying? That's a yeah, good question. Yeah. <laughs> what well, information? Classification. What information in these private contracts is public? I.e., can one call a company to see if they are the beneficiary on a policy? Uh, no. No. They are private. So, what is public? What is public about one of these private contracts? Whatever you want to be public. Whatever you've disclosed yeah. publicly, that's what's public. <laughs> that's it. And it ends there. Hmm. So privacy has uh, some meaning. Mm-hmm. I love it. Oh, this was the guy I mentioned earlier. Same, same one who asked the question. Uh, are you guys accepting new clients? I've tried to get a hold of Ryan and haven't heard back. I want to have an agent who is close to Nelson Nash. I mean, all of that is perfect. <laughs> you should answer your um, phone, man. I mean, what's the problem? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know I don't want to like have you do work again but um, send in another form <laughs> or email me or something that implies that he sent one in previously and you overlooked it um, yeah which I just I find that hard to believe but I'm willing to accept that it could have happened so I accept my apology if that was the case and uh, we'll get you going Next person, hi James can I use an IUL policy instead of whole life to exercise infinite banking no um. <laughs> well, thanks, Ryan, for answering that question for me. <laughs> thanks for answering that question for me. You could. You know, you can, if you have an account value in IUL, um, you can 
exercise your loan provision, but you're not practicing infinite banking. Yeah. Nelson has one page in, in uh, his book, Becoming Your Own Banker, that talks about UL. And the IUL, Index Universal Life, is just the latest iteration. I mean, we've discussed IUL quite a bit from yeah. time to time, but it's like this. There's this, a whole episode on it. It's titled that way. I, I think there's several, yeah. Here, let me let me say this about Index Universal Life. And I've said this in many times in rooms full of agents and advisors, and I'm sure I didn't make any friends, and you know, but I haven't lost any sleep. All right. <clears throat> The Index Universal Life Policy is just the latest iteration foisted upon the unsuspecting American public. It violates the very essence of life insurance. You retain the risk of dying without life insurance. You're not going to enjoy a tax-free income, which is heavily touted, and a death benefit, or either of them most of the time. And, and, and let me say this, that the, the reason IUL is promoted so heavily is because they illustrate so beautifully. Right? The National Association of Insurance Commissioners- Like a fiction novel. <laughs> several years ago, limited the rate of return that could be illustrated in a universal life policy. And I'm not saying that, uh, that's just factual. And now- the life insurance companies come up with these uh, options and benefits of the policies to get around that with multipliers and different things. And my point is this, that when you're purchasing life insurance based solely on an illustration, it is going to lead you to universal life because it illustrates so beautifully. So... I believe that's one of the reasons that it's heavily promoted because it illustrates so well. And so then if you're just looking at numbers on a page, it's just like this this individual that has this uh, article that we've talked about for the last two episodes. You know, 4% is bigger than, or 6% is larger than 4%. No kidding. <laughs> I mean, no kidding. So... Um, I want to say, and the short answer is you can bank with anything. Can you exercise your loan provision on the universal life contract? Yes. Will you be sorely disappointed using a, 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 an index universal life policy? Yes, in general. Over time, the older you get, the less that will uh, perform for you. It will not serve you well over your whole lifetime. And it speaks very well to this just noise, in my opinion. It's just another area of noise in the infinite banking world. Well, here, we can illustrate a very large account value with universal life. It's no different if you're purchasing a 90-10 policy or 95-5 or an 80-20. If you're looking at the illustration, universal life illustrates the best. Yeah. Okay, thanks for letting me share. Christian M., a week ago, I don't know which one was, this was on, but hey, Ryan, where'd you get the taxation is theft coffee mug? I need that in my life. Uh, this was a gift from my grandmother. I don't know where it came from, but I know if you uh, search online, you'll find it. But thank you for noticing that. We should merch it up. Right? And then save the best for last. The others were good, don't get me wrong, but this one is thorough, and I'm going to read it. Oh. All right. Glenn, oh, yeah, yeah. Glenn Nicholson, and thank you. This is a wonderful 
comment. There were several other NNI practitioners that did a video on why Dave Ramsey's assessment of IBC was incorrect. I'm glad y'all did too. Uh, there was one guy commenting and calling everybody a liar who was defending IBC. I, of course, couldn't let that stand and had to join in. I asked the guy why he was so disparaging and explained IBC and that the cash value is just the net present value of death benefit like you guys have taught me. Good job. He then responded and called me a liar because the company keeps your cash value and it's part of the death benefit and that I, as an insurance agent, am just trying to get commissions. LOL. I explained to him that I am not an insurance salesman, that I am a retired Air Force, Air Force colonel and still working for the Air Force as a civilian leading the test programs for the next tanker aircraft and one of the frontline and one of the frontline fighters. Then I told him to point I told him to point out where I had lied because I had just told him the cash value is the net present value of the death benefit, which means that, yes, the cash value is part of the death benefit. Then I reiterated that it is all about capital investment, and I'm using my cash, cash value to buy rental assets that are making me wealthy. <laughs> then I, I love that. Then I dared him to read Becoming Your Own Banker. Needless to say, I haven't heard back from him, and I believe Dave's organization had taken down my comments because I can't find it anywhere. <laughs> Censored by Ramsey. Huh? <laughs> anyway, James, thanks for helping me get started with the IBC and teaching me all about it to the point that I know what I'm doing and can easily defend it. Thanks, Glenn. Enough said. There you go. Thank you, Glenn. Everybody wants to be like Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> All right, lunchtime. <clears throat> All right, thank you for listening. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content.